Hey everyone, Sam Brief here with the Mental Game Podcast, episode 9. Hope you're doing well, hope you're staying healthy. Saying those things kind of feels like talking out a professional email introduction. Hello sir, hope this email finds you well. No, it didn't. Well, I hope this podcast finds you well. It's episode 9 and I've got a really, really interesting guest for you. She does a lot. Her name is Dr. Megan Roach. And she's not only a five-time national champion trail runner and the 2016 U.S. Trail Runner of the Year, but she's also a medical doctor and a Ph.D. student in epidemiology, which is extremely relevant given that we've got a pandemic going on. The reason I have Dr. Roach on right now is because she just co-authored a really interesting Stanford University study that looked at the impact that COVID has had on athletes' mental health. And the findings were astounding. Just the incredible negative impact that COVID has had on athletes' mental health. And of course, this is predictable. It's impacted my mental health. I'm sure in some ways it's impacted yours or someone you love. So of course, the same is true for athletes, especially because so many athletes have had games, matches, meets, races canceled, finances are more uncertain, everything is more uncertain right now. So the results aren't surprising, but Dr. Roach, being one of the co-authors of the study, dives into the nitty-gritty and tells me why we're seeing some of those trends and also how we can get out of it. We also touch on a whole lot more, from our love of coffee to her incredible trail running career and her husband, who also is a national champion runner. So without further ado, here she is, Dr. Megan Roach. Dr. Megan Roach joins me on the Mental Game podcast today from the beautiful mountains of Boulder, Colorado. How are you doing, Dr. Roach? I'm doing fantastic. I'm just really excited that you're covering this topic. And for the listeners, we just had a great 10-minute conversation. And I'm so, before this podcast started being recorded, and I'm just so pumped to talk to you. I love your energy, your enthusiasm, your approach, your why for doing this podcast. So it's a big honor to be on here. And, and thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. That, that means a lot to me. I mean, this, this, part of the podcast for me is selfish because I really enjoy connecting with people like you and learning and um, making cool connections with cool people. And you are a really cool person, not to float your boat too much, but you are a doctor. You are a PhD student in epidemiology. You are a national champion trail runner and running coach. You do a lot. Also, your husband, David, is a champion trail runner. What's a morning like in your house? <laughs> Thanks. Well, it involves quite a lot of coffee in our house. Um, so we typically get up pretty early. I would say our alarm goes off anywhere between 4.30 and 5 a.m. And then as soon as we get up, it's like hitting that coffee button and like it's time to go for the day. But I think what I love most about my mornings is that I start my mornings coaching. And I find that time for me is so grounding because I'm connecting with all of these athletes that I've worked with for a long period of time. And it's one of those ways to start the day that just feels energizing and motivating. And um, it's like vicariously living through all of these athletes' lives. And to me, it's like, it's great. It's like getting to have all these different experiences at once. Dr. Roach, you just mentioned one of my favorite things in the world, coffee. How do you take it? 
Um, I take it. So I take it with a lot of cream and a lot of sugar. Oh no. I know. I know. Well, it's it's funny because I was a barista in high school. And so I used to have, I was pretty principled. I was like, I only drink black coffee. It's the only way to do coffee. And then, um, my husband, David is really into the cream and sugar and slowly over time I've come over to that side. He infected you. Yes, exactly. And we are pretty, so even though I was a barista and had all of these like high coffee standards in the past, we will drink like instant coffee. We'll drink like the standard Folger stuff. So we are really not particular. It just has to be plentiful. The best part of growing up or waking up is Folgers in your cup. That was impressive. In the roast household. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, I'm a coffee nut too. I take it black, but. I can I can respect. Well, maybe your, uh, I feel like you have we you have some time to come over. I feel like maybe maybe this is going to happen slowly over time. No, you won't infect me. <laughs> I should stop saying the word infect. That's kind of a trigger word right now. And you also are a PhD student in epidemiology, as I mentioned. So I I've got some COVID questions for you because I'm here in Chicago. We got a huge uptick in cases right now, and people are starting to re hunker down um, because. A lot of people stopped hunkering down, and that's kind of why we're in the situation we're in, as you well know. So we'll dive into that. But first, I want to dive into a very specific part of COVID, and that's the whole point of this podcast. It's mental health, because you co-authored a Stanford University study that looked at athletes and mental health and the effect of COVID on their mental health. And the findings, for me, were astounding in the number of athletes that struggle with depression and anxiety way more, over five times more during COVID than before COVID. Could you just briefly, for all the people out there, summarize what you think is the main finding of this study? Absolutely. So to start, we kind of, we had the idea for doing this study, knowing that athletes are going through a hard time right now, given the changes in race structure. And in this particular population, we were looking at endurance athletes. So it was mostly changes in races, um, as opposed to changes in like soccer matches or basketball games or any of those things. And we knew that athletes were struggling, you know, undergoing that uncertainty, struggling with motivation, struggling with all these different things. And so we wanted to create a survey that could capture that. Um, and that in turn could allow us to help identify resources for these athletes that may be struggling. Um, so what we did was we partnered with Strava, which is this online platform where athletes go to upload their GPS activities. And we surveyed 131 athletes. And it's funny, I've been in research a long time. And this was probably the most staggering result that I have seen in research. And it was one of the situations where when I was running the data, I didn't even need to run at first, a test for looking at statistical significance or running these different significance tests, because I saw the numbers of my eyes and was like, oh my gosh, these numbers are staggering. Um, And so what we did find was that compared to, as you mentioned before, um, compared to the pre-COVID time period, athletes were experiencing five to six times, um, it was 5.8, around 5.8 times increased rates of depression um, and increased increased rates of um, anxiety. Um, And that's a pretty staggering finding. Um, and something that we're really hoping to address. So for me, when I read those numbers, I wasn't surprised at all. We were talking before the podcast about how it's not just athletes, everyone, not everyone, but it's a trend in the population that more people are having mental health issues during the pandemic than before the pandemic. That's true for me, 100%. So I wasn't super surprised. You're an expert. You're the one who ran the study and 
that you also know a lot about being an athlete, coaching athletes, and epidemiology. Take me through something in this study that I or someone just reading it online wouldn't necessarily notice as being significant that to you as an expert, you found significant. So I think to me was what was most interesting. So in addition to the survey, we did an analysis where we looked at athletes' GPS activities. And so we were looking at how their training was being modified as a result of COVID. I mean, we had a few hypotheses related to the fact that athletes would probably be training less in groups, training less with partners, um, you know, probably having changes in their indoor versus outdoor exercise. But what we found was that athletes were actually, on average, increasing the duration of their training. Um, so on average, the athletes were training more during COVID-19. But at the same time, we were seeing these staggering mental health findings. And I think for me, what's interesting is untangling that, is thinking that exercise is often this you know, thing that we think about as being great for mental health, as something that really can like, help boost mental health. But here we have a population that's exercising more, but actually experiencing more mental health difficulties. And I think that gets to two points. One is, is that these athletes are already exercising a lot. And so it's hard, you know, if you're already exercising for 90 minutes, you know, increasing that to 100 minutes probably isn't going to change too much. So this is a very different population. But I think it also just really addresses the idea that mental health struggles are quite significant right now. Um, and we're really, we're really seeing that relationship. What's the biggest reason for the mental health struggles other than just the pandemic as a whole? Is there something specific there? That was a question that I grappled with a lot during this study. So this study was initially framed as a COVID-19 study and that's still how it will be published and still how um, we're structuring it. But I think for a lot of athletes, 2020 in general goes beyond COVID-19. There have been so many different struggles that people are facing, whether it's like um, you know, we're, we're seeing struggles of racial, racial inequality. We're seeing, um, you know, wildfires, like athletes are just facing so many different things that are not just COVID-19. And so actually what we did is when we saw these staggering results quantitatively on the survey is we did, a, we decided to actually go back and do a qualitative analysis and interview the athletes to really try to get un understand exactly the unique experiences that they were having. An interesting part of the study to me was your financial analysis, because you found that over 70% of the athletes you studied were worried about their future financial compensation from playing the sport they play. And it's interesting because I think most Americans, when they think about athletes and money, they think about LeBron James, they think about Mike Trout, Mookie Betts, these mega contracts. And like, oh, if you're a professional athlete, you don't have to worry about money. But a lot of people don't realize that most professional athletes do have to worry about money, not only in those, you know, the big four leagues, but in your world, in the running world and so many Olympic sports. I mean, the, the, the ramifications of the Olympics being pushed back means another year delayed of massive marketing dollars coming in to Olympic athletes. And that's something that I think the everyday American might not connect to. So what specifically about the financial findings and mental health did you find interesting? That's a fantastic question. So I think you bring up a great point there too, where these are professional endurance athletes. And what I've seen in the endurance world is that there are very few athletes who are receiving these like stellar contracts that allow you to have, you know, to think more grandiosely in terms of like your finances. Most contracts are athletes 
that are piecing together different sponsorships that are bringing together these small, these small deals together to make ends meet. And what we found was actually, um, upwards, or I think it was around 47% of athletes, um, received a reduction in financial compensation from sponsors. And, um, so I think when you're trying to make ends meet like this, and you're also facing these, like these changes in competition structure, these changes in motivation, um, it just becomes very challenging to think about athletics as this long-term future. And we also saw that too, is, is where athletes were struggling to think about how they were defining themselves as an athlete and how are they defining themselves as a future. And I think finances are tied to that because many athletes are like, it's like the equivalent of you know, going to a job and thinking about losing your job is, you know, if you're losing this financial compensation and that's something that's very challenging. It's tough. I mean, for an athlete and for anyone in sports, like I'm not an athlete. I don't pretend to be. I mean, sometimes if you catch me on, on a basketball court, I might be pretending, but I'm usually just not, but I work in sports and I dealt with that during the March, April, May heavy quarantine time when my baseball team, the Chicago Dogs, it did not look like we were going to have a season. Luckily, we did, but it didn't look like it. I was thinking, oh, crap, we're not going to have a season. I'm going to be sitting around all summer. Uh, who knows if I'm going to get paid? How long is this thing going to last? Do I have a future? Do I have to like go do a boring desk job now? I mean, all these questions cause me so much anxiety, and I know it was similar and often even more pronounced in so many athletes. So something I've found just anecdotally is uncertainty breeds anxiety and breeds depression. And your study just echoes that. I a hundred percent agree with that. Also, I will, I will chime in on your point. So I have, I coach a lot of runners and my, my phrase is that if you run, you're a runner and I would apply that to athletics. So if you sweat, you are an athlete. Yes. So you are an athlete. Um, and I think it's just like a really important point for athletes across the board to embrace. Um, but I agree with you about uncertainty. What I think is interesting though, is that athletes often face uncertainty outside of COVID. Um, so for example, injuries, um, whether it's performance stagnation, like there's a lot of uncertainty coupled into an athletic life and uh, aging, you know, the, an athletic career is often pretty short compared to like standard business careers. And my theory is that athletes will come out of COVID-19, even though this is a struggle, many athletes will come out more resilient because they've, they've worked through these different methods and these different coping strategies for handling uncertainty. And so I think that's a really great point that you brought up. Right. It's like, if you can do your thing mid pandemic, you can do your thing post pandemic. Exactly. And you're going to thrive. And I think, I think athletes are starting to realize that as a collective community. And I think we still need tons of mental health resources because like, you know, developing resilience often requires a therapist. It requires, you know, meditation. It requires so many different coping strategies. And I think like we just need to make those more readily available for athletes so that they can come out of this more resilient and stronger. I want to be positive for a second because you're, you're kind of shifting me towards being positive this study went from pre-pandemic to mid-pandemic and showed that mental health deteriorated almost sixfold. Imagine the future study, whenever this pandemic ends, the mid-pandemic to post-pandemic mental health comparison. Guess what that study looks like? That's, a, that's another amazing question. And this is something that I've actually thought quite deeply about. Um, I think, I do think there will be trickle effects of this. So I think 
and especially I think it's going to be pretty individual specific. So I think like once you go through a financial hardship, it can really impact families. Um, I think like people will probably be feeling the weight of the pandemic for a long time. And it's important as a community that we come together and support those individuals that are feeling that. But I do think that there will be some sort of like, it's almost like I can compare this to a really bad injury that you sustain as an athlete. When you come back to the game, you have this newfound appreciation for going out there and competing in a more normal way. And I think, um, I think as a population, we're going to have that at some point, like, you know, doing normal things. We're going to have so much appreciation for like, you know, being able to safely walk into a restaurant and order a cheeseburger and sit down and eat it. And I think like, I think that's, that may be reflected. Um, and it may, I guess my big question is just how long it's going to take to get there, because I think it may take a little while. Well, you're a PhD student in epidemiology, and I am a person who is very eager to know the answer to that question. When is this crap going to end? What can you tell me? It's, it's a tough question. Uh, so it's interesting. So I'm a second year PhD student in epidemiology. And when I went to my first year of um, doing epidemiology, people were like, what in the world are you studying? My dad actually referred to epidemiology as the WTF-ology. He's like, I don't know what, you, what exactly you're studying. And then the, I never imagined to be on podcasts. I mean, I, I talk about epidemiology now nonstop on podcasts. And it's like, I never imagined a world in which that would happen. Um, and it's just, it's kind of, it's like an unbelievable reflection to me, everything that's gone on in the last two years. Um, I would say the biggest thing I've learned um, in epidemiology and being surrounded by people who know a lot more than I do is, is that people who know a lot more than I do still don't know. Um, and I think that's been something that's just really opened my eyes. And I think it's going to be, my prediction is that it's going to take a year, a year and a half from now for things to be become more normal. Um, I think we're starting to see that, you know, as this like second wave comes or whatever wave we want to call it comes to our country right now. Um, so that's my, that's my prediction. And what's your definition of normal? Because I, I've thought about this a lot and talked to my family and my girlfriend and friends about this is what's normal. Is it when I can go in a restaurant and order the cheeseburger or is it when I can leave my house or, or go in my apartment elevator without a mask on? Like what to you means it's normal again? Yeah, I think that's a question that everyone has to answer individually. I think for me, I define my normal as like walking into a grocery store and not thinking about being six feet from everyone, not thinking about wearing a mask, being comfortable going to the gym, um, getting on a plane. That normal for me may take a while. And I think, I think everyone's normal is going to um, equilibrate at different paces, even when the pandemic is is like behind us. You know, I think about like, people may be wearing masks on planes now forever. You know, it's, it's, I think like people, like these are ingrained habits, especially for kids and adolescents. And it will be interesting to see how long some of those, you know, persist. Yeah, I've long thought about it with shaking hands. Pre-COVID, I would sometimes feel a little grossed out if I was at a dinner party and shaking hands with a million people. I just feel like my hands are gross and I'd sometimes sneak off into the bathroom to wash them. Because I, even if there's not COVID going on, you know, if you've got a cold, I don't want your cold. If you have the flu, I don't want your flu. And the same goes on a plane, right? Like these graphics that people put out on Twitter showing the particles disgustingly spewing out of someone's mouth and nose. Like, I don't want that. I don't care if you have COVID or, or a common cold. Like, I don't want to get sick. Yeah, so I think what I've thought about in that, in that frame 
is how this impacts kids and young adults. Because for me as a kid, like I was never aware of germs. Like I would walk into a plane, I would just, you know, be all over the place, like getting into everything, not aware (laughs) of this process. And I'm fascinated to see how this is going to impact kids and their awareness of germs, because to some extent, like, you know, it's helpful to be safe and cautious, but kids now are more aware of germs than they've ever been before. And certainly that may have lasting behavioral and mental impacts. Um, And I'm curious to kind of see how that's going to trend. I want to zone back in on mental health here with doctors, because that's a huge part of your life. You are a doctor. What's the mental health toll you've seen in the medical community? Very high. So actually, so we published a study or, you know, we were still in the works of publishing it, but we released it on the Strava platform. And a lot of the Twitter comments I was getting was this study should really be done in, in doctors and physicians and people on the healthcare lines right now, nurses, um, PAs. And I a hundred percent agree. Um, I think it's taking a, a quite a big mental health toll just because there's, again, there's uncertainty. You're going into work. You're not sure if you're being exposed. You're working these long hours. I think another impact too is, is that there's all these restrictions in the hospital that make it harder to move about, which, you know, these restrictions are necessary, um, but like families can't be there for patients. And so doctors are fulfilling more of those like emotional roles for patients because, you know, the patients can't interact with their families. And there's just like, there's all of these different tendrils in which it's impacting physicians and healthcare professionals and nurses. And um, I think we're just beginning to understand where those tendrils even start. What's your day-to-day like right now? (laughs) Most of my days look pretty different. Um, So I would say it always starts with coffee as we've started about coffee with some, some cream and sugar. A lot of cream and a lot of sugar. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that coffee kind of flows pretty pretty gradually um, throughout the day. Um, But I, I start my day coaching. Um, It's something that just elevates me. I love coaching. Um, It's something that I want to do forever. And I just get energized um, by working my athletes. Um, Then I'll coach for like two hours and go out for either a run or a bike ride. And that's like my decompression time, turn on music, just roll with the day, have fun with it. Um, And then I come back and right now my days vary from having anywhere from 15 Zoom calls to, you know, four Zoom calls and then lots of research and work, um, you know, scattered throughout there. And then um, either a double in the evening, so another biker run um, or just totally chill time with my husband and dog. For the morning run and the afternoon run or bike ride, how long are those? It varies by day. So, um, you know, it could be anywhere from six miles to 14 miles. Um, yeah. <laughs> the look on your face is great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those of you just listening, she just saw my face do this very strange thing. <laughs> and it's funny. And that's what I try to emphasize to my runners too, is, is they're like, I just ran eight miles this morning. And I'm like, if you tell that to 98% of the population, they're like, you ran eight miles this morning. That's an amazing thing. And I think often as athletes, we normalize the things that we do. Um, And it's really important, I think, to get that outsider's perspective, to get that look on your face, like, oh my gosh, no, this is actually something like really cool that we're able to do with our bodies. Right. It, It really is incredible. I actually, you'll be very proud of me because you already called me an athlete, which by the way, is a clip that I might just save and, and show to people, you know, look, here's someone show, telling me I'm an athlete. Um, but I actually ran a 5k last November, which was very difficult. So for you to just pop out of bed, have the coffee and then go run six to eight miles, just like that is mind blowing to me. And, and 
for you to zoom it out and take it to athletes as a whole, maybe that's something that can pump up athletes and their mental health, right? Is, is just that gratification from the outside of like, you're incredible. How do you do that? Yeah. And I think what I've encouraged for athletes too, is just to be open and sharing that. Like I think right now there's definitely downfalls in using social media, but I think right now it's a powerful community that we can tap into when there's not a lot of like physical or social communities that are happening in person. And I think, you know, being willing to share those experiences openly, like either whether that's your struggles or your successes. Like I know I'm the type of person it's like, if I will share my struggles, but I have a hard time sharing my successes. And I try to get athletes to do that sometimes because I think it's not only you receive the like, I know you just received the context in which you've, you just completed that, but I think it also inspires others too. And I think it's, it's a great part of the athletic community is just being willing to share that. I know your worlds are very intertwined and just on this podcast, we've meshed together a lot of the aspects of your life. But for me, just when I read about you on paper, it seems like two very separate worlds. You've got the medical part of your world and then the running coaching part of your world. I want to get into you as an athlete a bit because you're a national champion trail runner. You were the 2016 U.S. Trail Runner of the Year. How did you get into this whole mess? <laughs> mess is a good way to describe it. Uh, mountains are messy. Trails are messy. I've had a, a lot of spills on the sides of mountains. Uh, so I actually started, I love sports uh, growing up. I knew that whatever I wanted to do in life, it had to involve athletics just because it's like, it's that thing that got me out of bed in the morning from a young age as a kid and something that I knew immediately. But I, I actually went to college to play field hockey. Uh, so as a field hockey player, and then realized that I liked the wind sprints when everyone else didn't. Um, and so that was an indication that after playing four years of field hockey in college, that I should take an extra year to run track. And track was great. I love track. I love the idea of running, but not so much running in consecutive circles. And so naturally found my way to the mountains where there's like much more freedom to adventure. You feel like you're covering ground and, uh, being out here in Colorado is just such a great place to trail run. I got into running last year and would sometimes find my focus slip and find myself getting even a little bored. Like my arms and legs were moving and maybe I'd be listening to music or maybe a podcast, but it's just, I would find myself getting bored. And I think a lot of people I've heard just anecdotally be like, oh, running's boring, like running on the treadmill is boring. But it sounds like for you, from the wind sprints with Duke field hockey, it's always been something exhilarating for you. So I'm curious to know, what do you think about when you're running and what about it makes it so thrilling? So I think what about it that makes it so thrilling is that I may have a screw loose in my brain. Like, I think it's probably not natural, the amount that I love running. And I'm quite, I'm quite aware of that fact. Um, and it's actually been something that's been really important to me because like I derive so much of my own mental health from running, but I need to always make sure that it's not my main mental health therapy or avenue just because like, it's not something that's always consistent. Um, yeah, but I think, I think when I, when people struggle with enjoying running, I think starting with music. So like I listen to music on every single one of my runs and it's something that just like brings me joy. And some people aren't music runners and that's okay. But I think just being patient in the process, like I think it's one of those things, it's kind of like meditation that it takes a couple of weeks to truly tap into that energizing part of running. Like when you first start out running, it honestly sucks. And I think it's helpful for people to understand that like it's going to suck for about four weeks and then usually it will get better and more enjoyable from there. 
And what do you think about when you're running or do you think when you're running? So about 50% of the time, I would say my brain is totally blank. It's a blank slate. And usually that happens when I'm at my highest heart rate, when running is the hardest. And it's, it's almost what I need to process. Cause like for me, sometimes like running is hard. Like it's, it's quite painful. Like, you know, you're running straight up a mountain and that's usually when my mind is blank on days that are easier or I'm just kind of out for a long exploratory run. Often I find my mind going in many different directions. It's sometimes when I have my most creative moments thinking about writing or science um, or any number of things. But usually it's like, it's a different, it's almost like a different train of thought than I would typically have just like walking around in the world. I was in Colorado with some friends a few months ago and we went on a hike in the mountains. It was, I want to say an eight mile hike there and back, up and down. And we were exhausted. I mean, we, we were hiking. We were just walking. We were stopping every few minutes, huffing, puffing, downing waters, granola bars, all that. So what you're telling me is that that path that I went on that was so exhausting, you're, you're sprinting that. Maybe not sprinting, but you're running it. Jogging. Well, it depends. So there's actually an interesting study for trail runners that sometimes it's more economical or so it's better for running economy output to hike instead of run. Um, and around 20 or 30% greed is where that starts to occur. They're still trying to figure that out. Um, so most drills I probably would be running. Um, but if it's super steep, super gnarly, sometimes it's actually more efficient and faster to hike it, which is counterintuitive, um, but has been validated in the research. You sound like such a mountain person when you use the word gnarly. I love it. Yeah, yeah gnarly, stoke, rad. I feel like I, uh, <laughs> I use those terms. It's like I'm, I'm combining my West Coast and my, uh, my Colorado ge- geography. How many medical doctors openly say gnarly? <laughs> Quite a few. Um, so I, I loved emergency medicine and sports medicine in my, in my training. And I feel like probably 80% of emergency medicine um, physicians would say rad or gnarly or, or those words. You very much break the stereotype of a doctor and like what we see on TV and movies. And it sounds like some of your colleagues do too. Yeah. And it's, I, it's, it's refreshing. So I think what I've seen is I've been inspired by some of my colleagues who just keep it real with patients, you know, and doing so in a professional way, like you, it's really important to be professional in that conversation. But I think it often breaks down these barriers of formality that sometimes prevent like diagnostic, like, you know, like prevent, like getting to understand a patient on a diet on a level that will allow better diagnostics. So it's like sometimes like learning little snippets about someone's family or about their interests or some of these things, not only are they great for like connection with the patient and making that patient feel welcome, but sometimes like they're diagnostic as well. And it's quite interesting to see how some of the best physicians are able to weave that in. Dr. Roach, before I let you go, I I have two more questions for you and I'm going to shift back to COVID for a moment. Mm -hmm. The first is with mental health and COVID, this is for athletes, non-athletes, just anyone. Give me one tip to protect mental health during the pandemic. I can think of about 8,000 and I'm going to go with the one that's most topical on my mind right now. 
I think it's healthy for people to start a meditation practice or to start some sort of breathing practice that allows um, individuals to become more grounded. So I personally have started that during COVID-19 and have suggested it to some of the athletes that I coach. And I think it's one of those things. It's like, it's almost like this safe space that you can bring yourself to even in the toughest of challenges. And um, I'm currently proposing a study to actually look at the benefits of meditation on mental health in the long term. So for someone like me, who's tried meditating in the past, I've, I've done some of the apps and done it for maybe the little mini ones, like five, 10 minutes at a time, but have admittedly found it difficult to focus and honestly, have kind of given up on it. I haven't meditated in probably two months, but I'd love to get back into it. And the fact that it was your number one of 8,000 uh, COVID mental health tips inspires me to get back on the horse. What would you say to someone who's, who's tried but found it very difficult? I would say that it's difficult for everyone. And I think the difficulty is actually the beautiful part because you have to get into this state where you embrace not being judgmental of yourself because the minute that you're judgmental of yourself, you start to slip away from, it's like if you're judgmental of these, these outside thoughts creeping in or not being able to stay with the meditation, it just kind of distracts from the whole purpose. So the goal is to see, to take almost an outsider perspective and be like, I see you, I see these outside thoughts, but I'm going to go ahead and return back to the meditation. Um, and I think that's been something that I've, you know, I'm, I'm one of the most like self-critical people out there and it's really helped me kind of work through that. All right, I'm going to get back on the horse. You I got love an it. app you recommend? I know there's, there's a million meditation there's apps. There's tons of them. So I personally have used Calm and Headspace, both, both because they have specific sections for athletes. I listened to a Matthew McConaughey uh, sleep recording the other night. Whoa! Yeah, it was crazy. That's gnarly. Him for, yeah, it was great. I was like, he's going to say, all right, all right, all right. At some point, it's like, all right, all right, all right. It's time to go to sleep. So I was waiting for it. <laughs> I need that throughout my day. All right, all right, all right. It's time to wake up. All right, all right. Time for lunch. Yeah, well, it would be a great alarm throughout the day. All right, I'm going to try that. Headspace and Calm were the two you recommended. All right, mm -hmm. that's uh, maybe that'll be my, my afternoon. I'll, I'll, I'll do some meditating. I'm pretty sure that Headspace actually has the opportunity now. If individuals cannot afford Headspace, I think they have a place that you can email and they will give you a free subscription. Um, and they've made that available during COVID times. I believe that's still running. Oh, that's great. It's, it's been great to see some companies step up in ways like that. So especially with something as important as mental health, that that's really wonderful to hear. Yeah, I wasn't, I was inspired by that. And I think, you know, it's just, it just goes to show, you know, how forward thinking um, companies like Headspace are. And last thing I've got for you, Dr. Roach, I want to shift back to the you as in a PhD candidate for epidemiology with COVID going on, there's so much information out there. I mean, it, it is just overwhelming. People saying one thing, of course, there's a lot of misinformation out there and people denying science, which for me, and I'm sure for you, is just infuriating. But even the solid medical information, there's just so much and there's new studies coming out every day. What's something that you could explain to me in layman terms that I can use to go and protect myself in my day-to-day -day life with COVID going on, be it mask wearing, be it the proper way to distance, proper way to travel, go to the grocery store. I just see so much out there. And I guess this question I could consolidate to just help me, Dr. Roach. 
So I think for me, I've really struggled with this. It's fundamentally shifting the way that we do science and it's fundamentally shifting um, the overall publication and scientific review process. So now papers get submitted for COVID and many of them don't have to go through the standard peer review process, which is why we're seeing, and it's great because it's allowing this information to be released faster and faster. But it's also, as scientists, it's making us have to like, really go through the methods of every paper to make sure that it's, you know, it's the methods are sound um, to make sure that it seems biologically appropriate. And then, you know, these sources are getting picked up by the media. So it's a very, very challenging time. And I am even struggling with it myself, even though I study this field and have a medical background. And so wherever you are, if you are struggling with this, you are not alone. I think that that describes most of the US right now. I think keeping it simple for my recommendation is just wear a mask and wear it well. Um, so I've seen, you know, I've seen different iterations of people wearing masks, whether it's not, you know, fully up over their nose or whether that's like all the way down below their chin. Um, and it's like, get a mask that is consistent for you, that fits well. Um, there's lots of great options on Amazon. There's cute ones at Target and rock the heck out of that mask because the research clearly shows that it works. And it's something that I think is a really helpful suggestion. I'm glad that was your number one suggestion because A, it's extremely important and B, it's so freaking easy. Yes. It's like the I easiest agree. thing to do. It's so I mean, uh, it's, it's so mind-numbingly easy to wear a mask. I mean, it's like when you leave your house, you put on your shoes, right? That's very easy. Actually, putting on shoes is much more difficult than putting on a mask because sometimes you've got to bend down, you've got to tie, you've got to tighten. Sometimes you even have to double knot. The mask, you just put it over your ears and walk out the door. It's very easy. So and I would uh, highly recommend. Yeah, I would argue too at this point that you can make it highly fashionable. So Target sells masks that have unicorns on them. You can get bandana print. You can get, I mean, there's just, there's different ways to express yourself via wearing a mask. And I think that's a cool thing. and something that we should all embrace. What's yours? I've got a few. So I, I got one last night. That's a denim one. It's kind of cute. Um, yes. And then I have a standard N95 for days that I may have higher exposure. Um, that's the one I probably wear the most. And then I have another one with unicorns on it. Oh, and actually a pizza mask too. So I have a mask with all these pizzas on it. And whenever I get pizza delivery, I wear it and it, it um, excites the, the delivery person. <laughs> you dress up for your pizza deliveries. That's awesome. Yes, they know me by name now. So it's, it's that is awesome. That's, that's and, 2020 in a nutshell is wearing a pizza mask for the pizza <laughs> delivery man who delivers it from six feet apart. That's that's my current life. And that's the highlight of everyone's day. And you know, I really like the idea of a denim mask because it it's fashionable and denim seems in theory like it would be very protective. Actually, I had that same thought process last night when I put it on and um, it's, it fits my face really well, but again, it's like that thicker material and there's great studies out there showing that the, the thicker or like the, dense, the density of the material actually matters. Um, so denim is a good way to go. All right. Well, and also it's getting cold as shit here in Chicago. So that sounds like it would keep you warm. It's freaking freezing here. So it's, I, I, it's a good winter mask. All right. I'm on it meditate and denim mask purchase that's my to-do list for the don't afternoon. forget you are also an athlete you can add that to and me. i'm an athlete wow yes. yeah. wow well dr roach thank you so much and for those of you at home you can follow her on twitter at meg underscore runs underscore happy and uh, check out her coaching business swaprunning.com she is a phd student in epidemiology she is a medical doctor and 
She is a national champion trail runner. So Megan Roach, thanks so much for hopping on. Thank you so much. And I would like to say too, I've done a lot of podcasts and you are one of the most fantastic hosts. So I'm really excited for this and really glad that, um, you know, you're building this podcast because you are just very talented at this. Thank you so much. That really, really means a lot. Thank you, Megan. Back in the studio, Sam here. And that was the incredibly impressive Dr. Roach blew me away with all of the things she does and how she balances all of that. And the study is very, very interesting. You can check it out at strava.com backslash press backslash Stanford dash pro dash athlete dash study all about what COVID-19 has done to athletes and their mental health. Very, very relevant right now. If you're interested in sports, which I assume you are just by virtue of listening to this podcast. And speaking of that, I just want to say nine episodes in, I've really appreciated the outpouring of support. This is a passion project of mine. I'm doing it outside of the scope of my day job over at Chicago State University right now. And I've just enjoyed getting to know people and meet people and learn about something that's really important to me in mental health and something that's impacted my life very recently in mental health. So thank you for not only listening, but in many cases sharing and spreading it around because as I said, it is very, very important. So nine episodes in, we're into double digits next. Episode 10 coming next week. I've been Sam Brief in Chicago. As always, stay safe, stay healthy. Adios.